Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to look this morning at verses 22 through verse 36. Acts 2, 22 to 36. If you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all of you who join us via our live stream. We're so grateful that you're here this morning and worshiping with us and those down the hall in the venue service and also Reach Church DeSoto. Join us live stream. Thank you for joining us this morning. Let's pray together before we get into God's word. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus Christ who is our living hope, that we have hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, I pray this morning that you would bless your word. It would speak to all of us today. We would hear the truth of Christ. And God, I pray if there's anybody in this room watching online that doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would know the hope of Christ, that they would call upon the name of the Lord, and they would be saved. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. In Acts chapter two, we get a chance to look at the first Christian sermon ever preached, preached and delivered by Christ's closest associate here on earth, Simon Peter. The beauty of this message is that it's founded upon scripture. He will use scripture and then he will point us to Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the focus and the affection of all of God's word. It's a beautiful message, only lasted about three minutes. That's a good sermon, amen. <laughs> three minutes. Peter's a fisherman. He gets straight to the point. He doesn't preach to felt needs. He doesn't tell you about his experience. He doesn't even tell them what to do. He simply quotes scripture and preaches Jesus. And 3,000 people come to faith in Christ and are baptized. In fact, he doesn't even give an appeal. They interrupt him. They give the appeal. And Peter sees an amazing work of God. I think it's safe to say that outside the preaching ministry of Jesus, not only is this the first Christian sermon, it's the greatest Christian sermon ever preached. The context is that Jesus has lived, died, was buried, has been raised. He appeared to many, and then he has ascended to the Father. The disciples, they've remained in Jerusalem because Jesus told them, don't you dare go anywhere or do anything until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Peter, don't you try doing this on your own. You wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they have had a 10 day prayer meeting. Ten days in prayer culminating on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples and the Holy Spirit enables them to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to people of all languages. These people that have gathered from all over the world in Jerusalem for Passover now hear the gospel message in their own language and the crowd is amazed. These are untrained ordinary men they're fishermen, they're Galileans, no credentials, no seminary, no education at all. The only one that had education was Judas, and he's not there. The crowd doesn't understand. They can't grasp it. But at the same time, 
They can't deny it. They can't deny what they've seen with their eyes and heard with their ears. Initially, they attempt to explain it away. They come to the conclusion, this is just a bunch of drunk fishermen. And then something amazing happens. Peter stands up. And the picture here is not that he was sitting down and then he had to stand up. No, the word carries the idea of boldly responding to their assertions. He rises to the moment. Remember, this is the guy who had denied Christ by the fierce intimidation of a little servant girl. But now he's a changed man, changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, changed by the resurrection of Christ, changed by the forgiveness of Christ, changed by the Holy Spirit of God, and he responds. In verse 14, he says, these men are not drunk. It's too early to get drunk. Even drunk people don't get drunk at 9 a.m., he says. I think a little bit of humor to grab their attention. And then he declares in verses 16 through 21 that this is not something new. He declares to this crowd, this is something God said would happen. He tells us that the prophet Joel prophesied that this day would come. The near fulfillment being the day of Pentecost. The ultimate fulfillment being the tribulation that we've been studying But the point here is God said that he would pour out his spirit on all people, irrespective of their status, their race, their gender, their age. God said this was happening. And he's pouring out his spirit to enable these disciples to preach the gospel. And so that in verse 21 it says, it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verses 22 through uh, 36, Peter preaches Jesus. Because this salvation can only be experienced through Christ. Christianity is not based on what we have done. It is based upon what God has done through Jesus Christ. Let me ask it this way. How do you know today How do you know that God will accept you? How do you know that one day Christ will receive you into his presence when you die? Because most people will respond with with a first person pronoun. I have done this or I have done that. But the right answer is not what you and I have done. The right answer begins in the third person pronoun. He, him, his That my confidence that I will be with Christ forever in heaven is not based on the unfinished work of the Spirit in my life. It's based on the completed work of Christ in his death and resurrection. And so where does Peter begin? He begins not with his experience and not with their needs. He begins with the historical facts of Christ's ministry. Look with me in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He says Jesus was attested by God. That Jesus is not just some rogue Jew going off on his own. No, he's attested by God. You remember at Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends like a dove. And God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
at the transfiguration, you'll remember Jesus there with Peter, James, and John. And they get a chance to see the glorified Christ. And, and with him is a Elijah and Moses. And then Elijah and Moses fade into the greater light of Christ because the law and the prophets point us to Jesus. And God thunders from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He is attested by God. But Peter says here he is attested by God with miracles and wonders and signs. That God authenticated the work of, and the person and the deity of Christ by doing things that are supernatural. To show that he's God. To show that he's creator. To show that, that all things are subject to him. Jesus performed miracles like no one else. In the gospels we have approximately 35 miracles. John tells us if we recorded all that Jesus did, all the libraries of the world couldn't contain it. But they give us 35 miracles. He performed miracles over demons, disease, disability. He calmed the winds and the waves. He raised three people back from the dead, a little girl, a young boy, and a grown man. And he performed these miracles like no one else. He just said, Lazarus out. And Lazarus came forth. He said, peace be still, and the winds calmed, and the waves calmed, and the sea became like glass. He performed miracles like no one else. And Peter says to the crowd, you know about these things. These are facts. He says to this crowd, these things happened in your midst. Days earlier, Lazarus had been raised from the dead right in front of them. They had seen it. They had seen the lame man brought in and lowered from the roof. They had seen the, the blind man receive his sight. These are things that they saw and they witnessed that happened in their midst. But then look in verse 23. It says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He says here to this crowd, Jesus died according to the predetermined plan of God. That the Jewish people might have, uh, leadership might have drove the Romans, and, and the Romans might have drove the nails, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. You know, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ came out, there was a lot of uh, question about who killed Jesus, and some even thought maybe this movie is anti-Semitic. Listen to me this morning. The Jews aren't responsible. The Romans aren't responsible. God killed him according to his perfect plan. He died unto the wrath of God for our sins. The, the cross of Christ is not plan B. It's not like things all of a sudden got off the tracks and God said, well, now I got to come up with another plan. I got to come up with plan B. No, all of these things occurred according to the perfect will of God for us. But what Peter also makes clear is that even though these things happened according to the predetermined plan of God, it does not lessen the guiltiness of sinners. I love this about Peter. No political correctness in Peter. Just a good fisherman. He doesn't pull any punches. Peter looks at this crowd, this Jewish leadership, and says, you are guilty. You nailed him to the cross. He went to the cross because of your sins. And listen, this is no less true of us. It was our sin that nailed Christ to the cross. 
The guilt and weight of our sin was placed on his shoulders. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. So it was according to the predetermined plan of God. But we are all guilty because we are all sinners. And then look in verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting into the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Death could not hold Christ. Why? Because death is a product of sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He is God. So the question is, why did Jesus have to die? Very simply, he died for you and me. Jesus said in John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life down so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Listen to me, if Jesus did not intend to die, all the power on earth could not have put him on that cross. And if Jesus did not intend to stay in that tomb, all the power on the earth could not keep him there. God raised him up as an affirmation that he is God and that he is perfect and the sacrifice for our sin has been accepted. The payment for our sin debt has been paid in full. God raised him up again. And I love this because God used his own enemies to carry out his plan. When they thought that they had crucified him and killed him and buried him, they thought that was the end. Hell had let itself loose. The devil had done his worst, and God smashed it all in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the public vindication that Jesus is God, and God's plan of salvation has been brought about in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at with, with me at verses 25 through 28. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue exalted, moreover my flesh will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. You know the beauty of this, Peter says, I'm not the only one who believed these things. He says David believed this. That David had the assurance of salvation. Uh, David had no fear in his heart. Even his flesh lived in hope. David's heart and flesh rejoiced in the assurance of salvation that one day he would be bodily resurrected from the grave. And what was the basis of his hope? He says, because you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. That David had hope because somebody was coming who would defeat the grave, whose body who would not rot, someone who could not be held by death. So who is the Holy One? People often mistaken this for David. Peter says it's not David he's talking about. In verse 29 he tells us, he says, Brethren, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Meaning David's hope for salvation was not in himself. Peter says David wasn't talking about himself. He's dead and buried. His ashes are with us to this day. We can go look at his tomb. No, David's hope of salvation and resurrection was not in himself. 
Murderers and adulterers don't tend to place hope in themselves for salvation. So who was his hope? Who is this holy one? Look at verse 30. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all eyewitnesses. The beauty of this is Peter is saying David was a Christian, that all of his hopes were in Messiah, that Messiah would come and defeat death, that he would become the basis of God's hope and salvation. Oftentimes you get a lot of questions. How are people in the Old Testament saved? Same as you and me. It's always been by faith. They believed in a Christ who would come. We believe in a Christ who has come. They were saved on credit that came due at the cross. But it's always been about a belief in this one person that God promised would come at the very fall of man in Genesis 3.15. And he has come in the person of Jesus Christ in fulfillment with God's word. And he is the basis of our hope and life and salvation. That he would defeat the grave. And he would become the basis of our hope. That was David's hope. Look at verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. That Christ is miraculous in his life and ministry. He's miraculous in his death and resurrection. But, But Peter says he's also miraculous in his exaltation. That man killed him and God exalted him. You know what the Greek word is for exalted? Is the Greek word oopsie. Don't you love that? What do we say when a child falls down? We say oopsie and we pick them up. Christ gave up the glory of heaven. He took the form of a man and a bondservant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went down. He went as low as a man can go and God said oopsie and he picked him up. And gave him the name that's above every name. Man beat Jesus, spat upon him, mocked him, but God exalted him. Man killed him and God raised him. Man scoffs at him and God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Peter says this Jesus, he's miraculous in his life. We saw it. He's miraculous in his death. He's miraculous in his resurrection. He's miraculous in his exaltation. And he looks at that crowd and he says, Jesus is responsible for what you are seeing here. That Christ lived, died, was raised and ascended. And he received the promise of the Spirit. And he's poured forth his Spirit, which has now resulted in what you see and hear That the spirit is being poured forth so that the truth of God's word and the gospel of life and salvation might come to all who call upon the name of the Lord. That Christ has done and accomplished all the work. As he said on the cross, it is finished. To tell us thy, it's done. All the work is done. And now God says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. He's responsible for what you see. Between the the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the second coming of Christ that we'll study next week in Revelation, between those two dates, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost 
the second coming of Christ, there's a corridor of time. It's the day of grace. It's a, it's a corridor of opportunity. And the invitation to know Christ's salvation has been opened up to the whole world. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the question. Will this invitation go out forever? Look at verses 34 through 35. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. He himself says, the Lord, that's God the Father, said to my Lord, that's Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Will the Son of God, will Jesus Christ someday rise from his throne and end this period of grace? Yes, he will. Peter warns this crowd, this day of salvation for all who call upon the Lord, it's an opportunity, but it's an opportunity that will not last forever. You can bow now or you can bow later. You can glorify God forever in heaven or you'll glorify him in hell, but Christ will have his way. He is coming down. He will put down his enemies and make them a footstool for his feet. And so Peter concludes in verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's desire for that crowd, and I would say Peter's desire for us, is that we would have the same certainty that he had, that we would be certain about these things. In fact, Peter, in his very last letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, He's an old man, so we see him now here in his youth, filled with the Spirit, preaching. In 2 Peter, he's an old man, and he knows the time of his death is close, and he writes to let them know that they did not, listen to this, he wants them to know that they did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, I saw the resurrected Christ. Peter had breakfast with the resurrected Christ on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He was there on the mountain of transfiguration. He heard God's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter had, as he said it, he had the prophetic word made more certain and he goes on to say, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The old man Peter, having lived his life, the old man Peter says, I'm about to die. Hold on. He says, hold on to these things that you've heard. And on what grounds do we hold on to them? On what grounds do we believe them? Peter says, I was there. I saw him. I ate with him. This is not a fairy tale. Peter says, we've suffered for this. Peter's going to suffer. Jesus predicted that Peter would be crucified. And Peter would be. And Peter knew it was coming. And Peter says, listen to me today. It's all true. We have the prophetic word made more certain. You know, the beauty of this is I was studying this passage. Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2. He quotes from Psalm 110. He quotes from Psalm 16. 
The beauty of this is the prophecy that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm continually, as I study God's word, I'm continually amazed in the unity of God's word that he can say things and prophecies in Genesis and bring them to perfect fulfillment in the book of Revelation. And in the ministry of Christ, there were all these prophecies. How do you explain these prophets who are able to tell us and give us great detail centuries before Christ about the ministry of Christ. Listen, if it were one or two details, maybe you could chalk it up to coincidence, but it's not. The Old Testament prophets tell us where Jesus would be born. They tell us about his poverty. They tell us about his character. They tell us how he rides into Jerusalem with specifics. The colt, the foal of a donkey, they tell us how he would be, be sold in the Old Testament, sold for exactly 30 pieces of silver. They tell us how he would die. The Old Testament prophets tell us where he would be buried. They tell us how he would ascend. They tell us how he would pour forth his spirit. It's amazing to me. And I'm here to tell you the only explanation for this is that God is behind it all. And this is the truth that confronts all of us today. You see, all of us are different, but all of us are the same, aren't we? We're all sinners. The most respected man in this room is as much a sinner as the man on death row. There's none righteous, no, not one. And I am here to tell you today, your only hope is in this man, Jesus Christ, who lived a real and physical life, died a real and physical death, was physically placed in a tomb, and we can't find his body. He is our only hope of salvation, and the truth of Christ confronts all of us today. This is what amazed me. So many people will never truly consider the facts of Jesus Christ. They never truly face Christ. And so they continue in the darkness and the misery of sin, enslaved to sin that maybe sometimes give them some little momentary flashes of joy and happiness, but ultimately leads them right back down into a tunnel of darkness and despair where they go to funerals and they stand at tombs and they're, they're shaken for a moment and they head right back to, into their sin, afraid of the future, not knowing where they're going, having no real understanding to the meaning and purpose of life. And if that is you today, I plead with you, consider Jesus. But be warned, your time is limited. God's plan is unavoidable. Whether you face Christ in this life or not, rest assured, one day you will face him. The great and the small, the mighty and the insignificant, everybody will stand before him and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But the good news today is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Can I ask you today, have you called upon the name of the Lord? Listen to me, if you have not, you don't need to talk with me. 
you don't need a pastor and you don't need a priest. You need Jesus. And he is a prayer away. You know the one part of the Easter story that always amazes me is Judas. He comes to the realization that he's betrayed an innocent man. And yet you know what he wouldn't do? He wouldn't go back to Jesus. This is a man who saw Jesus who never turned a single soul away who came to him in repentance and humility. And I'm here today to tell you he won't turn you away either. Regardless of where you've been or what you've done, everyone, that's everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In 1932, a pastor in California was witnessing to a man who refused to trust in Christ. The man's objection was, why should I worship a dead Jew? And that man's statement stayed with him all week long as he prepared his Easter message. On Easter Sunday, he got up early to get ready for service. He turned on his radio to hear a famous liberal preacher from New York say, he said these words, good morning, it's Easter. You know, folks, it doesn't really make any difference to me if Christ be risen or not. As far as I'm concerned, his body could be as dust in a Palestinian tomb. The main thing is the truth goes marching on. And that pastor said he wanted to take that radio and fling it out the room. And he yelled out just in anger, it's a lie. His wife came running in. She said, what in the world is wrong with you? And he said, did you hear what that good-for-nothing preacher just said? He went on that morning in that Easter service to preach the truth and the reality of Christ risen, raised from the dead, defeated the grave, and the salvation that's opened to all who come to know him. He preached again that evening the same reality of the resurrected Christ and yet when he got home he still couldn't get the question out of that, that that man offered out of his mind. He still couldn't forget about the words of that preacher and he was still just gnawing at him. His wife finally looked at him and she said she said, Alfred, why don't you go in the basement just do what you do best. Why don't you write a song about it and maybe you'll feel better. Alfred Ackley went down in the basement and wrote my favorite Easter hymn. Listen to me this morning. The basis of Christianity is not my experience. It's not my need. The basis of Christianity is the historical fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose for my sin. That's the basis of Christianity. But I will also tell you that if you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Y'all know that hymn? You wanna sing it together? Amen. Pastor Bill, where you at? There he is. I will warn you before we sing this hymn, let's all rise. Stand up, you're reached to Soto, join us. Stand up, venue service. Pastor Bill came to me last night and said, Pastor, you know this hymn you've selected, it's not, it's not your ordinary hymn. It's got a little range to it. <laughs> I was a bit insulted. I said, Brother, 
I got a few tricks in the bag I ain't shown you yet. <laughs> These pipes got some range you don't know about. So let's see if we can get through this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. thank you that you are risen we thank you for the resurrection that has secured for us a living hope that guarantees us that one day by faith in you we will obtain an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and will not fade away and the resurrection of Christ guarantees it Lord, I pray for anybody that's here this morning that doesn't know you. Lord, I pray that they would know today you're a prayer away. The invitation is open. Everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be, not could be. Even a thief on the cross can cry out in repentance and faith in Jesus. You said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. God, I pray that they would see the depth of their sin by the power of your spirit, they'd see the beauty of your sacrificial death on the cross for them. I pray they would trust in you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we'd be reminded today that the spirit has gone forth, enabling us to preach boldly the good news of Jesus Christ. Make us bold for you. In a dark world, I pray that we would shine like lights. God, that our life would lend credibility to the message we proclaim and we pray that we'd be used by you to tell people about the good news of Christ. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.